Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. The Crisis Next Door, a weekly report on the biggest conflicts around the world with host Jason Brooks. Thanks for listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks. The doomsday clock has remained close to midnight for as long as the U.S. and Russia have pointed nuclear missiles at each other. The fall of the Berlin Wall and several treaties between the U.S. and Russia gained some minutes back in the 90s. But the minute hand has been ticking back towards midnight, and it may be getting closer after President Trump withdrew the U.S. from the INF Treaty with Russia. Joining the crisis next door to talk about the significance of this move is Stephen Schwartz, a non-resident senior fellow at the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists and editor co-author of Atomic Audit, The Cost and Consequences of U.S. Nuclear Weapons Since 1940. Stephen, thank you for joining the crisis next door. Sure. I'm happy to help. Stephen, the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty was signed by Reagan and Gorbachev in 1987. Can you explain the significance of the treaty and, and what did it exactly cover? Well, the INF Treaty was significant in a number of ways. Uh, it was the first treaty, uh, first nuclear weapons related treaty of the Reagan administration. And it came at a time when uh, tensions had been increasing uh, for several years, particularly during Reagan's first term. And there was great concern about uh, whether the United States and Russia might actually go to war with nuclear weapons. So the fact that we were able to actually negotiate a treaty was in and of itself a significant development. The treaty, however, was significant in other ways. It was actually the first treaty that required either country to eliminate nuclear weapons. Previous treaties had simply specified limits that you could have up to so many weapons, but it didn't require any weapons to actually be destroyed. This one did. Uh, it also had a very intrusive and effective on-site verification uh, mechanism, which had not been utilized previously. Uh, so for multiple reasons, it was really uh, a landmark treaty, and uh, even though it came near the end of the Cold War, uh, it really signaled, I think, really the beginning of the end of the Cold War. How many missiles were destroyed under the treaty? And and please discuss the verification process a bit more. And what was allowed with these surprise visits? Was there a certain amount of warning that had to occur before there was on-site verification? Sure, absolutely. So so the treaty was signed by Reagan and Gorbachev in 87. It went into effect in 1988. And over the next three years, the United States and Russia destroyed a total of 2,692 short, medium, and intermediate range missiles, missiles that under the treaty had a range of 500 to 5,000 uh, kilometers. And it's also the first treaty that eliminated an entire class of weapons. So uh, even weapons that were not uh, uh, could not carry or, or would not necessarily carry nuclear weapons were banned under this treaty uh, under the assumption that um, they could carry nuclear weapons and therefore they would have to be uh, eliminated. So again, over three years, almost 2,700 uh, missiles were eliminated and they were eliminated in 
one of two ways. Russia primarily eliminated its weapons by uh, blowing them up in place. Uh, the United States primarily eliminated its weapons by cutting them into pieces. And in both cases, uh, each side was allowed to have inspectors on site to verify that this was happening as it was happening. Uh, there were also verification measures that involved so-called national technical means, which, in other words, reconnaissance satellites. And there were pro uh, provisions to uh, that would prohibit either country from masking what it was doing from overhead reconnaissance satellites. So the combination of on-site uh, uh, verification plus uh, the satellite reconnaissance enabled us to know with absolute certainty what was going on, when it was going on. And then beyond that, there were uh, other provisions. There was a so-called baseline inspection and inventory that happened, uh, that had to happen between 30 and 90 days after the treaty entered into force. And that's where each side inventoried all of the weapons that it had that were subject to the treaty and were going to be eliminated. And so Russia did that and U.S. inspectors were present for that inventory and photographs were taken, maps were made, so we knew exactly where everything was. And they did the same for us. And then again, over the next three years, those weapons were uh, taken apart and destroyed under the treaty. Now, importantly, the treaty did not require, and in fact, no nuclear arms reduction treatment agreement to date has ever required the elimination of the nuclear warheads. This is strictly about uh, the missiles. And one interesting fact about that is that the United States took the missile, sorry, took the warhead that was on the Pershing II intermediate range missile that we had deployed in West Germany, brought it back to the United States, reconfigured it into a gravity bomb, and then a few years later redeployed it back to Europe to be used on uh, bomber aircraft that we kept, that we keep there for, for use by NATO. Uh, Russia may well have done something similar. That wasn't at all disallowed. Either side wanted the other to know exactly how its warheads were put together. And so today there's been no verification required for that. Uh, and then the last part of the verification uh, process is that um, each side was allowed to have up to 20 short notice inspections annually at designated bases for the first three years. So we would tell the Russians, let's say, within, I don't know exactly what the time period was, maybe 10, 20, 30 days, something like that, probably less than 30 days. We want to come to X site and see what you're doing. And they had to allow us there and they would do the same thing. And in addition to that, each side was allowed to have up to 30 resident inspectors uh, to do what's called continuous portal monitoring at specified missile production facilities for up to, up to 13 years. So we had uh, inspectors for 13 years at a missile facility in Votkinsk that made uh, missile parts uh, that were covered under the treaty. And the Soviets sent inspectors to a, I believe it was a, a Thiokol rocket plant in Magna, Utah, and they did exactly the same thing. And all this allowed us, again, to know exactly what was going on, when it was going on, and allowed us, you know, exquisite uh, proof that things were happening when they were supposed to happen. And if there were any questions, of course, we could go uh, on the ground again in short notice and, and clear them up. And it worked remarkably well. You mentioned the U.S. finding a creative way to, to keep the nuclear warheads and the possibility of Russia doing it 
would you still say that it, it, the the spirit of the treaty had been upheld until these recent events? Again, I mean, it, it was um, when we found out that the United States was taking the W-85 warhead from the Pershing II and turning it into the B-61-10 gravity bomb and sending it back to Europe, um, that was that caught a lot of people's attention back when it happened uh, many years ago. Uh, it's ironic. It's unfortunate. But again, it's not at all uh, um, illegal under the treaty. So... Um, uh, I, I wish it hadn't happened, but that didn't violate the spirit, uh, or it certainly didn't viol violate the letter of the treaty. As far as the spirit of the treaty, um, technically not, since the treaty was only dealing with the missiles. Um, but, you know, that's that's what we did. And if the Russians raised any protests about it, um, I'm sure we tried to resolve them again. They might well have done um, something similar, uh, and hopefully in the future, although the future isn't looking very bright these days with regard to arms control, we'll find a way to actually deal with the warheads uh, and, and, and the bombs themselves. But yes, until fairly recently, some people say the last 10 years, some people say a few more, a few years less than that, uh, the treaty worked remarkably well. Now, the U.S. and NATO earlier this year accused Russia of violating the treaty with the development of a new cruise missile, the 9M729. And NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg said that NATO will respond in measured and respectable way, but doesn't want an arms race. And you go back to 2014 and President Obama accused Russia of violating the INF, but remained in order to avoid an arms race. Why do you think NATO has had a change of heart in that regard? It seems like NATO's coming down on Russia a little harder than before. Well, I'm sure the illegal annexation of Crimea has a lot to do with it. Uh, I suspect also that uh, NATO has come under attack from President Trump uh, for a variety of reasons, most of them false. And uh, perhaps in order to remain in President Trump's good graces, uh, they decided to go along with the U.S. line. But it's also true that NATO is not a, um, uh, a completely of one mind. Uh, newer NATO members, particularly in Eastern Europe, and I'm thinking particularly of Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, and Poland, uh, have historically been quite concerned about Russia. And recent events, I don't think, have given them any reason for them to change their their views on that. So, uh, you know, whereas folks in uh, Germany, for example, uh, or Italy, or even Greece, or Turkey, for that matter, all NATO members uh, might see the situation with Russia one way. Uh, they've got more direct experience with Russia and sitting on, on Russia's border, uh, they've got, you know, more immediate concerns. So I think for all of those reasons, uh, the tone has shifted somewhat. But it's important to note that you know, yes, the Obama administration started talking publicly about this this violation in 2014. It knew about it earlier than that. And it was working with the Russians to try to resolve it. Unfortunately, they were not able um, to, to do that. It's possible that the dispute hinged on something that the Russians thought was allowed, and it turned out wasn't, and they were mistaken. It's possible that the Russians deliberately tried to violate the treaty. But the fact remains now that, uh, you know, they've been accused of that. And now that the United States has unilaterally abandoned the treaty, uh, we've basically let Russia off the hook. There is absolutely no consequence to them. There's no penalty to them for, in fact, violating the treaty by testing this nuclear uh, testing. Sorry, not this nuclear testing this missile. 
in a in a prohibited fashion. And again, it is not necessarily a nuclear missile. It's it's a it's a conventional missile, but because it falls under the range provisions, by abandoning the treaty in this fashion, we basically said to Russia, "Okay, you know, we we accept that you've done this, um, but now you can do even more because there is no treaty constraining what you can do. You can not only test these weapons." You can deploy these weapons, which I think is exactly the wrong message to be sending. And I think, frankly, a message that NATO members, uh, if they really thought about it, is something that they would prefer not being sent. Do you think the Baltic nations and Poland are willing to host intermediate range missiles? And how would you expect Russia to counter that move? Well, this is an interesting question because we actually have no land-based intermediate-range missiles ready to deploy. And a senior U.S. Defense Department official admitted last week that it'll be years before we do. So we have walked away from this treaty. We've given Russia every incentive to continue violating it and deploy more more previously illegal weapons of its own. And we have absolutely nothing to counter them with on the ground. We do have so-called intermediate-range weapons that are not covered by the treaty, and I'm thinking about uh, sea-launch cruise missiles and air-launch cruise missiles, but we had those weapons before. Those are the only weapons that we really have that if we wanted to uh, reassure allies or send a message to Russia that we could deploy them somewhere, the fact is they're already deployed. So the question about, you know, which NATO country would do it, uh, we don't have anything to deploy uh, it's possible that some of those Eastern European states might be interested. I don't think that would be a very wise move on their part, even if they accepted, because then you're putting weapons that are very threatening to Russia right next to the Russian border. Also, countries in the eastern, sorry, the western part of NATO have not forgotten at all what happened the last time that we missiles in uh, in Europe. It, it started a huge crisis. It also kick-started a massive anti-nuclear movement there that in part led to the INF Treaty. There is absolutely no support within NATO, at least within most of NATO, except possibly, I think, for maybe Great Britain, to deploy any new nuclear weapons there. You're listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks, and we're talking about the U.S. withdrawal from the INF Treaty with Russia with Stephen Schwartz, a non-resident senior fellow at the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, and editor and co-author of Atomic Audit, The Costs and Consequences of U.S. Nuclear Weapons Since 1940. The U.S. withdrawal from the INF is now raising questions about the New START Treaty, which limits long-range weapons. It expires in February of 2021. How concerned are you about the U.S. remaining in the New START Treaty, and how important is that? Uh, it's incredibly important. With the demise of the INF Treaty, the New START Treaty, uh, which was signed in 2010, is the only remaining arms control agreement that puts any restrictions on U.S. or Russian strategic nuclear weapons. So weapons that are on long-range missiles, submarine-based missiles, and long-range bombers. If that treaty goes, uh, and you said, again, it's 18 months from now, uh, there will be absolutely no restrictions, which will be the first time since 1972 that's been the case. And a lot of people might say, well, you know, we can't trust Russia or it's not in our it's not in our national interest. And certainly people like National Security Advisor John Bolton, who is behind the U.S. withdrawal of the INF Treaty and also was behind the withdrawal uh, during the second Bush administration in 2002 of the anti-ballistic missile treaty, 
Uh, so he's a real, he's got a profession as a, as a treaty killer uh, because he's somebody who believes the United States should not have to have any constraints on its military or foreign policy, even though those constraints actually do benefit us in the long run. Uh, if that treaty goes, Russia can do whatever it wants. We can do whatever we want. And if we do that, we can expect other countries to respond because other countries get a vote. So, you know, what we do, what Russia does, doesn't just affect us. It affects the countries that we interact with, including, in our case, China. Uh, what, when China does something, it affects what India does. When India does something, it affects what Pakistan does. And so it goes, you know, on and on. Uh, I thought that we moved very far away from that dynamic, but we are rapidly sliding back toward it, and it's not for anyone's good. I think we know how the White House feels about these treaties. Any word on how the U.S. intelligence and military communities feel about the INF and New START treaties? Well, the uh, uh, senior U.S. military and intelligence leaders have been asked repeatedly in recent years uh, because the New START Treaty is not of unlimited duration. And it's important to note that it doesn't have to expire. There is a provision in New START that, that allows the president of Russia and the president of the United States to decide on their own, without involving their legislatures, to extend it for another five years. They just simply have to agree to do that. We've done that in the past with other treaties. It's a very simple matter. It can be done almost immediately. But President Trump shows very little interest in wanting to do this. Uh, President Putin is interested and has been pushing the United States, but, you know, it takes two to tango, as the saying goes. So, uh, you know, it could happen, but the longer you wait uh, to do it, the less likely it is to happen. And John Bolton said not too long ago, a month or two ago, that he thought it was unlikely that the treaty would be extended. Now, it's true that the treaty will expire if it's not extended after uh, uh, if Donald Trump is simply a one-term president, it would expire after he leaves office in January of, of 2021. But that leaves less than a month to try to get the treaty uh, extended. And it's not clear whether it would be possible to do that in such a short period of time. But senior U.S. military and intelligence officials have said, I think almost to a person, that New Star Treaty is incredibly important. It, it gives us predictability. We know what the Russians are doing. There are, I believe, quarterly data exchanges, so we know, both sides know, which what weapons we have that are accountable under the treaty, where they are, how many there are. And so we don't go back to, the, let's say, the 1950s or even the 1960s, where we had very poor intelligence, and we tended to overestimate what the Russians were doing, and they overestimated what we were doing. And we ended up building far more weapons than we needed, and at great cost and uh, also imperiled our security uh, in the process and led to not a few crises, including most notably the Cuban Missile Crisis. So they understand that this treaty is really critical. And if you were to, for example, allow it to lapse, it would cost many billions of dollars to create the kind of verification regime, and you wouldn't even be able to do it in full, that we have now essentially for free under the treaty. So there's another cost associated with that as well. As far as the INF Treaty, I don't think anybody was happy that the Russians were um, were violating the treaty, but it's important to note that they violated it first by simply testing this missile and then building a small number of these missiles. It's not clear how many, if any, of them are actually um, deployed. 
And again, these are most likely conventional missiles, although I suppose it's possible they could be nuclear-armed at some point, but there's no reason why the Russians would have to do that. So walking away from this treaty again without penalizing the Russians at all simply allows them to do what they were doing, but to do it 10 times over. That's not in anybody's interest, NATO's and the United States. President Trump says he wants a new treaty with Russia and China and says both countries are very excited about that prospect. What do you think? And would China go along, given it's got such a smaller stockpile of nuclear weapons compared to Russia and the U.S.? China is absolutely not excited about uh, engaging in negotiations with the United States and Russia for a new treaty. Uh, As you noted, their arsenal is significantly smaller uh, than the U.S. China has roughly 300 nuclear weapons right now. Uh, The United States... Uh, total inventory of weapons is over 6,000. Russia's is over 6,500. China's long-standing position is that it will engage in nuclear arms control with uh, the other nuclear powers, but only when they come down to its level. So we have to go, and we're now moving in the opposite direction, thanks to eliminating the INF Treaty and not making any effort to extend New START. So unless and until we get down to that, you know, 300-ish level, uh, they are not going to be at all interested. I mean, basically because, you know, what what do they have to gain from that? They're not going to cut further uh, and imperil their security as they see it uh, when they still face, you know, overwhelming superiority uh, by, in one case, their neighbor, and in another case, an adversary that happens to be across the Pacific Ocean. So, uh, I don't know where Donald Trump gets the idea that they're very excited about that. I suspect he's he's talking nonsense. Stephen, do you fear a new arms race with U.S. withdrawal from the INF? I think it's a distinct possibility. Um, I don't think it's likely to be a nuclear arms race at first. But one of the problems that we face is that the Russians today are more concerned about our precision conventional weapons than they are nuclear weapons, at least when it comes to Europe, uh, which is a complete reversal of the situation during the Cold War. Uh, Back then, we were concerned about uh, Russian nuclear weapons and our conventional inferiority, and now the shoe or the missile, as it were, is is on the other foot. Uh, It's very easy when you don't have... I mean, the treaty is important not just because it eliminated a whole class of weapons and it created this verification regime, but it also gave us an avenue to talk to Russia and for Russia to talk to us. We've now eliminated that, and so there's one less place for for us to get together and talk whenever we have issues or concerns about, in this case, European security. You know, I understand the people who say, well, this wasn't great because it only, you know, it only constrained the United States and Russia, but that's all it was designed to do. It's certainly possible that we could have created, uh, internationalized the NF Treaty, which people have been talking about for years, to basically ban these weapons worldwide. I think that would be quite helpful, but it's not something that China or India or Pakistan, to name just a few countries, are likely to engage in because it would be extremely detrimental to them while not really posing any particular problems to us because, of course, we've gotten rid of our our weapons are ready. So it's all, you know, well and good to talk about that, but you're not living in the real world. So yes, it is certainly possible that there could be 
a new arms race. There could also be increasing tensions, which could spark some sort of conflict, which could very easily uh, go nuclear, even though neither side wanted that to happen. So that's one reason why the doomsday clock is set at two minutes to midnight, which is the closest it's been since 1953. It's only gotten closer to midnight since Donald Trump became president. I can only imagine what's going to happen next year. Uh, you know, when the clock is, is uh, when the decision is made to consider resetting the clock, you know, Donald Trump talks about how wonderful things are between him and Putin and how much Kim Jong-un loves him, uh, which is basically fantasy land. How concerned should we be about proliferation with non-nuclear states and non-state actors being able to get their hands on nuclear weapons if these treaties disappear? Well, uh, I wouldn't worry too much about I, I don't think that this, uh, the demise of the INF Treaty or the potential demise of New START increases the risk of, of nuclear terrorism unless uh, Russia were, or the United States, although it's not likely in our case because we don't have the weapons, were to deploy substantial numbers of nuclear weapons uh, in the European theater. Uh, if you do that, uh, or if you increase the alert level of the weapons that you already have, it makes the uh, it increases the risks of a- risk of accident. It also increases the po- risk of the possibility of those weapons potentially falling into the wrong hands. Because the more that you have out there, even if you think you have ironclad security, the more opportunities there are for things to go um, wrong. So other than that, though, I really wouldn't worry about non-state actors, but. Having said that, the more that you talk about nuclear weapons as something to have and to develop and to threaten to use, the more you give license to the idea that these nuclear weapons are useful, that they're not just for deterrence, but they they could actually be used for fighting nuclear wars. And that sends exactly the wrong message to both non-state actors as well as to states that are have the potential to develop nuclear weapons, but have not. It would certainly push the doomsday clock even closer to midnight. And that's something that I think the world really does not want to see happen. No. Absolutely. All the indications are wrong. I mean, we've, we've, the Trump administration has walked away from our agreement with Iran, which is working, to prevent them from developing nuclear weapons. Uh, Trump is looking the other way at what North Korea is doing. Now we've walked away from INF. I mean, there's there's really not much left to, to fall apart, unfortunately. And the world holds its breath in the meantime. Stephen, thank you very much for joining us here on The Crisis Next Door. You're very welcome. Thank you. We've been joined by Stephen Schwartz, a non-resident senior fellow at the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists and editor and co-author of Atomic Audit, The Cost and Consequences of U.S. Nuclear Weapons Since 1940. Thanks for listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks. Till next time. The Crisis Next Door with host Jason Brooks is produced weekly. If you have any thoughts for Jason, email him at tcndpodcast at kcbsradio.com. Again, that's tcndpodcast at kcbsradio.com. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.